We're back in the book of 3 John, so let's just get right to it. If you have your Bibles, please open them to 3rd letter of the Apostle John as we conclude this study of a very short but very personal letter in the New Testament, 3rd John. You know, the history of letter writing, especially with the ancients, is a very fascinating study, both of the length and the distribution of ancient letters. According to Randolph Richards in his book, Paul in the First Century Letter Writing, the length of ancient letters on average was only 87 words long. Even a literary figure like Cicero wrote letters that averaged only 295 words. Paul's shortest letter, Philemon, is 335 words, is longer than Syrio's average one. The only New Testament letter shorter than this are 2 John, 245 words, and the letter before us today, 3 John, 219 words. Once the writing of the letter was done, it was ready for delivery by sealing the letter, not inside an envelope like we do today, but folding and then tying up a manuscript with a piece of cord and then a bit of clay to seal the knot and secure the letter and make sure that no one could read it except the one who would receive it. And then once the correspondence was done and sealed, the letter was given to a carrier or a messenger. There were no regular mailmen at that time, and of course, ordinary people didn't have access to Roman military and diplomatic mail service. But if you were rich, you could have a slave make a journey to deliver it. But if you were just an ordinary person, you had to do with travelers who just happened to be going to the place you wanted the letter to be sent. These individuals were carriers of the ancient world. They are the messengers of old. Interestingly, we know some of the carriers, the messengers, if you will, by name in the New Testament. For example, a woman named Phoebe carried Romans, according to Romans 16.1. A man named Tychicus carried Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, and Silvanus carried 1 Peter because Peter says in his letter, by Silvanus I have written to you briefly, which was a common way of them introducing the letter to recipients. These were the ancient messengers who were responsible to carry inspired text from the inspired writer to its predetermined location. Now, I give you this history this morning, not just as an account of ancient letters and their delivery, but because today, I believe we have a messenger of this letter in the verses before us. Today, we have a messenger that is, in truth, the third individual that the Apostle John has brought before us by the name of Demetrius, and a messenger that we will find out more about in the message as it goes on and unfolds today. But before we do, let me do a little review of where we are in this shortest and most personal of the Apostle John's letters. First, to a man named Gaius, who was the first personality that we studied two messages ago. The portrait of a faith-filled minister, Gaius. Now, if you've been with us for any time, you know that Gaius was a faithful minister, a man in the local church, He was probably an elder, definitely a minister, who was committed to the mission. He was committed to and willing to act faithfully, according to verse 5 of 3 John, in the work that he had done concerning strangers who had traveled to the church he belonged to, and he showed them hospitality, and he sent them on their way because of his grasp of the necessity for the local church to be a part of the Great Commission. 
And the kind of man that he was is made clear by the Apostle John as he unfolds this very specific portrait for us in the first eight verses of 3 John. 1 John tells us about this man's profession of apostolic love, his profession of apostolic love for the elder. He says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, verse 1, whom I love in truth. You see, this man named Gaius, who had a very special place in the apostle's heart, we read here that he loved him. It was not just some kind of a love that he had in his personality. It wasn't just a love that he might have had in his demeanor. No, the Apostle John loved him in truth, meaning that he loved him according to everything that was true. And that's how he begins this letter. What a wonderful way to begin. And then he reacts to this picture of Gaius in verse 2 by praying for him. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. This is, again, such a prayer of magnificent love for Gaius because he believes he can ask God to make Gaius healthy, as healthy as his soul is blessed. A prayer of such incredible confidence in this man's spiritual condition that he is willing to pray that his physical fitness, note some people think that Gaius was ill, to rise to the level of his heart's fitness. As a result of that prayer... John goes into a proclamation, a proclamation of joy. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. For I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This idea of walking in the truth is the greatest blessing for any pastor, any elder, or in this case, for any apostle, because knowing that those that you love are walking or having a daily obedience to the truth of Scripture, having a daily faithfulness to the proclamation of Jesus, just overflows the heart. Joy, joy because he's going to heaven, joy because when the apostle has revealed he has a changed heart and he's been molded into the affections of Christ and his life has now been transformed. And so this proclamation then transforms into praise, and we see the praise of the apostles' confidence in Gaius in verses 5 and 6. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers and are doing this though they are strangers, and they bore witness to your love before the church. So not only is Gaius walking in the truth Not only is he walking in the truth concerning his own personal life, but also Gaius is walking in the truth concerning the greater goal of the Savior, namely the salvation of others, winning the nations to Christ. He was faithful to show hospitality to strangers. He was faithful to show hospitality to these traveling teachers, most likely even in the harsh resistance from Diotrephes. And that faithfulness, was demonstrated in how once these missionaries returned home to the Apostle John's church, they testified to John of how Gaius' love was to them, and they gave reports to the other believers in the group that they boasted in the generosity of this one man. And then lastly, before he moves on to the other issues, he ends this portrait by granting Gaius a plan, a plan for apostolic ministry. You see that in verse 6b through 8. He says, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. 
Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. This is more than just a plan for Gaius' ministry. This is an apostolic plan for the local church in every generation. This is an apostolic plan, a plan this is that we should receive missionaries into the church and then send them off in such a way that it glorifies God because missionaries are taking such a sacrifice to go out in such a strange, strange world, such a resolve to trust God with their finances, to be brave in all kinds of circumstances, to be trusting God in their housing and their finances. And if I can say they deserve it, they deserve it knowing that when we support such traveling journey and journey teachers, that in a very real way, a very tangible way, we are going along with them in their journey. We may be going with them, maybe not physically to China, maybe not physically to Russia, but we are with them in a very tangible way that we funded them and we prayed for them and we befriended them and we shall be fellow workers with them even in eternity. Now, with that before you this morning, which is review let me tell you that this is a very pivotal section of 3 John. And I say that because it sets before us a major contrast just in time for him to introduce a second portrait, a second individual, a second character for us to consider by the name of Diotrephes. But unlike Gaius, Diotrephes was a faithless meddler. We go from a faith-filled minister to a faithless meddler. You see in verse 9, we're introduced to a man who defines faithlessness, defines it more than anybody else in the Bible, perhaps of Judas himself. He spoke evil gossip against the apostle John. He blocked the efforts of traveling missionaries, get this, that had been endorsed by the great apostle to be given hospitality. And he even denied and punished believers in the church for the fact that they had desired to to serve these missionaries. He disciplined them for merely wanting to help these ordained strangers on their way. He was, as we shall find, evil for ultimately defying the apostolic authority of the last living apostle on earth. There's a story concerning Dr. H.E. Robertson, an outstanding leader among the Southern Baptists and a great Greek scholar, who once wrote to an editorial in a denominational magazine about Diotrephes. And later, after the article was published, the editor reported that 25 deacons wrote to cancel their subscriptions, feeling personally attacked. (laughs) Why? Possibly because what was true of Diotrephes was true of them as well. So what was true of Diotrephes? Well, Verse 9 tells us he was full of pride. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. Diotrephes was a prideful man, a man who loved to be first among those in the church, who loved to be first even among those outside of the church, namely the apostle himself. This was the crux of the greatest evil of this man, the apex of the deepest scar that he held. His pride was his demise. And that leads to the penalty for that pride, which you see in verse 10. The penalty is, for this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does, unjustly disparaging us 
with wicked words. You just can't love being first among the people of God and think there's not going to be any consequences to that. You can't believe that you're the highest authority in the world and believe that no one's going to come to say to you like Daniel to David, you are the man. Your sins will find you out. And Diotrephes had slandered the apostle John. He rejected the letter that John gave him. He believed himself to be holier than thou, and yet he will be confronted and condemned according to the apostle John. What is the proof of that, you might ask? Look at verse 10b. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not welcome the brothers either. And he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. And this is the crux of why John writes this portrait, you see. Because Diotrephes saw traveling teachers, traveling teachers as obstacles to the kingdom of God. They were barriers to his rule and his reign. They were not welcomed, they were not encouraged, and therefore he becomes, or they become, a major blockade to the Great Commission in his mind in the first century. It was Arthur T. Pearson who once wrote, If missions languish, it is because the whole life of godliness is feeble. The command to go everywhere and preach to everybody is not obeyed until the will is lost by self-surrender in the will of God. Living, praying, giving, and going will always be found together. But self-sacrifice was not a characteristic of diatrophies. If you want more of a treatment, we did this in two different messages. You can go to gracechurch.org and get more in depth. But today, we are now led to the third portrait, the third portrait, the last portrait in this letter of John. We've seen, first of all, the portrait of a faith-filled minister named Gaius, the portrait of a faithless meddler named Diotrephes, and now the portrait of a faithful messenger, a messenger by the name of Demetrius And we see him here in verses 11 and 12. That is the title of our message this morning, The Portrait of a Faithful Messenger, Demetrius. Now, before we dive into what we have before us, it's important that you know that most commentators believe that not only was Demetrius the bearer of this letter to Gaius, but also, it seems, as if he was one of the missionaries who traveled from place to place and had been sent by the apostle John. Demetrius, as verse 7 is going to tell us, not only was a messenger who brought the letter to Gaius, but also he was one that could be defined as being sent out for the name of the, the sake of the name and received nothing from the Gentiles, so therefore he ought to be supported by the church so that the local church may become fellow workers with the truth. So I want to go back to this verse for a moment to establish in verse 7 and introduce Demetrius to you in this way before we go to verses 11 and 12 because verse 7 describes Demetrius so well. And to understand verse 7, I want to go back to Matthew 28 and look with you at the Great Commission. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28 just momentarily and look there as we read about this great moment in biblical history, the Great Commission. We'll start in verse 16 of Matthew 28. Matthew writes, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. 
And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What an amazing demand from our Lord to all who claim the name of Christ, specifically the apostles. It is important that you understand just in the short reading of that text that from the very beginning, Jesus has always demanded everything from his disciples. From the very beginning, he's decided to demand their entire lives. He told them that if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9, 23. He told them foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Follow me. He told them in John 15, 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. They always knew that Jesus demanded their lives, but it wasn't until he died and was raised from the grave that they really understood how dramatically his words painted what you might call a commissioned life. Please understand, the disciples were completely unprepared for this. They were completely stunned. They were completely thrown by what they had never been able to understand while Christ walked the earth, and that is he would come back from the dead. They had given up everything. They had given up their vocations, They had given up, some of them, their families. They had been consumed with Christ. But something was very, very different about Jesus now. Jesus had changed. The one who was once dead and absent suddenly becomes fully present in the spot where he was moments before not appearing. And when they saw him in his resurrected wholeness, the text said they worshipped him, verse 17. They were filled with awe and astonishment and reverence. They worshiped him, but it says some doubted. Now, please understand, this isn't a doubt that refers to unbelief. The word means having practical uncertainty. Two minds, hesitation, indecision. So in response to this uncertainty among them, the Lord does what? He commissions these uncertain worshipers. He doesn't admonish them. He doesn't curse them. He commissions them. And he begins his commissioning them by letting them know that their hesitation must be turned into bravery. They needed to be given a charge. They they needed to be given equipment to whatever strategy and firepower that they would need to accomplish this Herculean feat. They needed a plan. And what was that plan? Well, here is the main verb, make disciples. Make disciples. Everything else is in subjection to that. Going, baptizing, teaching. They're all in subjection to this one thing, make disciples. Make disciples. David Brainerd, a missionary in the American Indians of the New England time in the 18th century, is known for saying, oh, that I might be a flaming fire in the service of the Lord. Here I am, Lord, send me. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me from all that is called earthly comfort. Send me even to death itself, if it be. But in thy service and promote thy kingdom, send me. 
So now maybe you understand a little bit more the weightiness of this commission, why it's called the Great Commission, why it's so great. It's a great commission because it cannot be fulfilled just in a local church context. A commission that was so great that it had to extend all throughout the world, over the borders of a city, over the borders of a country, extending far and wide into nations. But who can do that? Who can do that? The call of the commission for the church here in Sun Valley is the call to uproot ourselves from this locality and to move to Africa and then to Asia and then to Antarctica and then to where else the Spirit of God might lead us or are we called to do the work of the ministry here? Whatever location you find yourself and then from that home base, if you will, equip others and train them and affirm them and commission them and send them out on behalf of the church. And by doing so, as John says, become fellow workers of the truth. And then once we send them out, others send them on. And then others send them on. And they do the same. And these traveling teachers go into homes and men who would, they have never met, strangers, if you will, and they lodge them and they support them and they befriend them and they send them on their way to repeat the process again and again and again. It's as if we're saying, we will stay here and man the fort. You take the message to the world. Demetrius is one such man who has been tasked to take the message to the world. He is the one who has been sent out, verse 7, back in 3 John, for the sake of the name, for the sake of the one who possesses all authority, for the sake of the one who commissioned the charge itself. And he was the one that wasn't supported by the pagans and needed, as it should be, support from the church. And though there really is only one verse in 3 John that refers directly to Demetrius, The reality is this letter in some ways is all about him. The whole letter is about this one man. Though Gaius is praised and Diotrephes is scorned, it's really Demetrius that is the object of the Apostle John's focus. Why? Because, as you shall see, what consumes the apostolic vision, what consumes the apostle in this letter is the danger of making the apostolic mandate to spread the gospel to the uttermost parts of the worst subservient to the serving in the local church. In other words, the praise of Gaius' ministry and the punishment of Diotrephes' ministry was all to establish the priority of Demetrius' ministry. Not just to bring the message to the church, but to bring the message to the world. So I want to look at this morning, these verses, verses 11 and 15, in this way, if you're taking notes, three incentives, three incentives regarding this man, Demetrius, that should move us toward faithfulness to protect the ministry of missions in the local church. Let me say that again. Three incentives regarding the man, Demetrius, that should move us towards faithfulness in what? To protect the ministry of missions in the local church. We're going to see these three incentives this way. I'll put them up front and then repeat them as we go. Number one, the exhortation towards faithfulness, the example of faithfulness, and the encouragement for faithfulness. And again, please note, this exhortation, example, and encouragement are all aimed at Gaius, to whom the letter is written. 
He's the one that's being exhorted. Remember, he is the one who needs to see this example of faithfulness. He is the one who needs to be encouraged towards faithfulness in the furtherance of this ministry of missions. So although the object is Demetrius, the one who must be sent, the one that needs to be influenced is Gaius. And so let's continue and see how this fleshes out before us. The first incentive, again, if you're taking notes, the first incentive that should move us towards faithfulness to protect the ministry of missions in the local church is seen in, number one, the exhortation towards faithfulness. The exhortation towards faithfulness. And we see this in verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Now, before we examine this exhortation as a whole, I want to draw your attention just one word for a moment, just one word that appears now for the fourth time before us in this letter. The Apostle John uses the term beloved four times. The first time is in verse 1. The second time is in verse 2. The third time is in verse 5. And now the last time is in verse 11. And each time this word appears, beloved, it appears in a masculine singular form, which means each time beloved is being used, it's referring to Gaius himself. So you could read it as if he's saying, Gaius, the one I love, do not imitate, present imperative, what is evil, but what is good, which could imply the idea of stop doing an action that's already in place. So that one word, beloved, makes us have to pause in everything that we've learned thus far in this message of 3 John. Why do I say that? Because now, if you're following me, the same Gaius who was loved by John, the same Gaius who was encouraged by John, the same Gaius that lifted up John and has commended John for his love of strangers, now, ironically, is commanded by John not to imitate the evil of Diotrephes of forbidding missionaries in the church. So what does that tell us? that the Apostle John knows that the best of men are men at best. That even faithful, faith-filled Gaius is vulnerable to the same behavior and pride that filled Diotrephes. And that the great Apostle, knowing himself as a son of Zebedee, one who wanted to be on the right or left hand of Christ, knows that if the mission of Christ is to be fulfilled, if the great commission is to be furthered, then it must be protected by vigilant self-examination, even from ourselves. You see, though Diotrephes was prideful man, though he had gained power by wrong means by ignoring the letters of the apostle, it's still possible, listen, for Gaius, the faithful, the faith-filled minister, to be wooed by such power and pride and longing for the influence of Diotrephes, that he too might forfeit and turn aside from the mission of Christ. So this is both an exhortation and a warning to us all. In J.R.R. Tolkien's famous trilogy, The Lord of the Ring, there's a very vivid illustration of this conflict in the soul with the introduction of this one character that isn't even human named The Ring. The Ring was forged in the depths of the fictional Middle-earth And therefore, it possessed an irresistible attraction for all that see it. Because this simple ring was the most powerful and the most evil object in all of Middle Earth. 
It was a physical embodiment of the worst that could ever be thought and felt and the embodiment of cruelty, dominion, greed, and lust. In the novel, the characters who don't have the possession of the ring want it. If they don't have the ring, they try to get it or keep it from those that want it. If they have it, they want to use it. And if they use it, they want to get more power. Some have said that the trilogy should have been titled The Temptation of the Ring because all of the characters in this novel who interact with the ring are tempted by it. This really comes home when one of the more powerful characters in The Fellowship of the Ring, a character Tolkien introduces as the great wizard Gandalf the Grey, is offered the ring. And Gandalf the wizard immediately refuses it because he acknowledges the danger. He says in the book, Do not tempt me, for I do not wish to become like the dark lord himself. He claims that the wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. The wizard knows that even an attempt to wield the ring for good purposes would eventually corrupt him because of its nature. Now, I bring that illustration to you, perhaps more powerful of an illustration if you have read the book or perhaps seen the film, but the point is still very typical and very powerful as well, that we too, the weak and the strong, are to be warned against the temptation of allowing our own agendas and our own priorities to become a ring. A ring that outranks what Scripture commands. A ring that makes our own intellect or desire and influence in the church to be a temptation to engulf us. It's a ring that seeks our own opinions to be more important than what the elders over us have declared. The point being is Gaius, though he was faithful, he too could be tempted to be Diotrephes. And he too could want to seek the same ring of temptation as Diotrephes did. And John tells him, do not imitate that man. Therefore, it's imperative, verse 11, not to imitate what is evil. Contextually here, the evil refers to Diotrephes. So in the context here, the evil must not be imitated is seen as, what is the evil? Slandering the apostolic authority. The evil of putting pride, of loving to be first before us and the evil of hindering the messengers and the message of the gospel of the Great Commission. In fact, it's such an evil, according to John, that means that you don't know God. You're not saved if you commit this evil. You don't want Gaius to do that. Now, if that's the evil, then what is the good, you might ask? Well, on one level, when he speaks of the good to imitate not what is evil, but verse 11, what is good. The one who does good is of God. Good in this context, some ways, is a demonstration of what Gaius already possesses, right? He's possessing a life of gospel witness in the church. He, he, he affirms the apostolic authority. He provides hospitality to traveling teachers. He has a life that is in, sees the need for the furtherance of the Great Commission, and he commits to it. But as I said, Gaius is already doing that and has done that and has other missionaries report back to the Apostle John that he continues to do that. So why is this exhortation there? Because there's another aspect of imitating the good that is beyond just not doing what Diotrephes does. It's beyond just the imitation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which goes without saying, even though he doesn't appear in this context, the greatest, of course, imitation. But he goes now to speak of interstage right, the messenger of good, a man named Demetrius. 
Demetrius, the newest stranger in his church. In other words, imitate what is good contextually in the good of Demetrius. And that leads us to the next incentive. The next incentive regarding the man Demetrius that should move us towards faithfulness to protect the ministry of missions in the local church. Not only does John give Gaius the exhortation towards faithfulness, and now he gives him the example of faithfulness in verse 12. The example of faithfulness. He writes, Demetrius has received a good witness from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our witness and you know that our witness is true. Demetrius is the example of the good one who knows God specifically, who knows God and desires what God desires, which is a good witness, a faithfulness to the Great Commission, and a love for the truth. Now, before we go too far, we need to ask ourselves, who is this Demetrius? Uh, again, like other names, uh, this is the first time we see Demetrius in the Bible, at least in this form. Demetrius is a name from a word Demeter, the goddess of fields and crops. Again, another Gentile name. So he came from a pagan background. However, other than that, all the other information that we know about Demetrius actually is just here in 3 John. All we know about him is here. So what do we know? First, his name is presented in this letter in such a way that it's pretty apparent that Gaius did not know him. This is a man whom the Apostle John has introduced for the first time through this letter. In fact, most probably, he had been brought to him by way of being the messenger of this letter. So here is Gaius reading the letter, whether to himself or out loud, with Demetrius, the stranger, standing right before him, waiting to hear the end of the letter, for he has not read it, words that are going to affirm the character of Demetrius right in front of Gaius, And as Demetrius stands there with open eyes waiting to the end of the reading, then both he and Gaius are left in this very awkward silence wondering what comes next. So why did the Apostle John grant Demetrius such a glowing review? Why was it necessary for John to say that Demetrius was a good witness from everyone? From everyone. Again, in Greek, all In other words, the the testimony of everyone concerning Demetrius in the past remains valid in the present. It's a perfect passive. He has received an ongoing and continual good testimony from everyone. Who can say that? That's a pretty exceptional claim. So why tell Gaius that? Why would he bring that up? Because Demetrius was more than a messenger. Get this, he was a missionary. He was a missionary. You see, this is a letter of commendation. Yes, this is a letter of encouragement and warning, yes, but it's also a letter of commendation. He's commending Demetrius to Gaius and to the church as a traveling teacher that should entertain and provide hospitality and should get support, just like verse 7 and 8 tells us. And Gaius is given reasons here as to why he should do good and recognize good because John has provided witness to this man, Demetrius, in three ways. One, from everyone. Two, from the truth itself. And three, from the apostle John. Now, before we move on, as you're thinking this through, do you remember in the Old Testament, if something was to be affirmed as true, how many witnesses were needed? Do you remember? Two or three. Two or three. In fact, I mentioned it even this morning when I was reading through the uh, the the, uh, epistle to the Hebrews. Everything had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, 
Deuteronomy 19.15. So John brings three witnesses. He brings three witnesses to bear on this traveling teacher as he delivers the letter to Gaius. He's received a good testimony, first from everyone in the church from which John writes. He received a good testimony from the truth itself, meaning the truth of the Christian faith as revealed in the scriptures. And he received a good testimony from the apostle John, who puts his stamp of approval on this man through observation of his life. And then he adds the statement to Gaius, and you know our witness is true. You know our witness is true because he knows that the same apostle John that is affirming Demetrius now in verse 12 is the same apostle John that affirmed Gaius in verses 3 and 5. I affirm him in the same way I affirm you. What is he affirming? That the great commission had come to Demetrius, and now Demetrius wants to go out with the Great Commission. Before, like all of us, Demetrius was a sinner who didn't know God. He was a pagan. He was a Gentile who loved this world, who didn't need forgiveness, who didn't believe that he had sinned against his creator, the God who had demonstrated himself in creation, who showed him that there was a God, but didn't show him the fullness of who God is. Until one day, because of God's great love and mercy, as Ephesians 2 tells us, he opened his eyes to the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. And once he was allowed to peek through the idea of the fullness of God and the glory of Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection, his hard heart was melted away. And he pleaded for Christ to forgive him. And the son of God did just that. And once he was forgiven... He started to live his ransom life for the Lord of his life who died for him. And now the great commission is his commission. And now he has become a tool in the Redeemer's hand to move sinners to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. It has been said the great commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. That was Demetrius. Reminds me of what James Calvert went out as a missionary to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands. And the ship captain tried to turn him back saying, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go against those savages. To which Calvert replied, we died before we even came here. This was Demetrius. So the apostle John is saying, dear Gaius, in the same way you served and loved and showed hospitality to those from our church that were missionaries for the sake of the name, now treat this man before you named Demetrius as a missionary whom I have sent. Regardless of how much you may be tempted to resist the commendation due to the evil influence of Diotrephes, due to the fear of him finding out that I have sent Demetrius to you, don't fear being disciplined out of the church because he loves to be first Because if I come, I will call him out as being in sin. So fear not, my brother, because Demetrius before you belongs to me. That's his exhortation. Which leads us to the last incentive regarding the man Demetrius that should move us towards faithfulness to protect the ministry of missions in the local church. Not only does John give Gaius the exhortation towards faithfulness in verse 11 and the example of faithfulness in verse 12, but now lastly, John gives Gaius the encouragement for faithfulness and we see that in verses 15 through 15. He writes, I had many things to write you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly and we will speak face to face 
Peace be with you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Now, I know at first this might seem like closing just kind of like a cut and paste of what he did in 2 John. And I say that because 2 John ends the letter with these words. Though I have many things to write you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I come, hope to come to you and speak face to face. Very similar to what John says here in 3 John, I had many things to write you, but I'm not willing to write them with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly and we will speak face to face. Very, very similar. You see many ways. In essence, he's saying there's so much more that I want to say, but it's not effective to do it with either paper or ink or pen and ink. It's more than that. It kind of reminds me of the Apostle John and what he wrote in the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 25. And there are so many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one after the other, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In the same way, in this sense, all three of those contexts, he's saying there's much more that I could ever write in all of those statements. In the gospel, he's saying, I want, there's so much more I could write to impress upon you the unlimited reasons why you should believe in Jesus. In 2 John, he could be saying, there's so much more that I could write so I could comfort you about the challenge of not accepting false teachers in your midst. But here in 3 John, it seems I would assert that he says so much more that I could write to affirm Demetrius, but I want to see you face to face, literally mouth to mouth, to press upon you the importance of taking care of him, knowing that in light of the possible influence of diatrophies in the church, that you might hesitate to keep up the good work because I know you will be faithful and, as an encouragement, I am coming soon. So the ending encouragement to the faith-filled Gaius is that the apostle will return soon and he will not only punish those in opposition to the truth, the truth that's not in diatrophies, but he will reward those who are faithful to the truth like Gaius. And then the very last encouragement in verse 15b, the friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. What an encouragement that is as well. Friends as Christians. Only time used here referring to Christians other than when Jesus says in John 15, 14, you are my friends, speaking to his disciples. To Gaius, perhaps the friends are so-called in contrast to the hostility of Diotrephes and his party. Instead of warfare, peace be with you. Instead of wickedness of enemies, salutations as friends. This is the letter of 3 John. Three different profiles, three different glimpses into a portrait of first a faith-filled man like Gaius, a man who is faithless like Diotrephes, and one who is faithful as a messenger in Demetrius. May the Lord bless the reading and delivery of his word today. Bow with me. Father God, thank you for this letter, for this mini-series on this wonderful personal correspondence of the Apostle John to Gaius. Through all of this, Father, I think that the main thing that comes away, for all of us perhaps, is that we too must be faithful to the missionaries of our church, that we must be faithful to not inhibit or to block or to do anything in our behavior through our pride or through our resistance to block or to come against those that the church is sending out to further the great commission that you have commissioned 
for the local church to be involved in. Father, let us all be Gaiuses. Let us all be those who are welcoming those, even from Shepherd's Conference, who is coming into our homes and to encourage them and to bless them and to support them financially and through prayer. Let none of us be Diotrephes who, in his wicked heart, wanted to go against even what the Apostle John himself had proclaimed. And may they be some of us who are even willing to be Demetrius, those men and women who would leave this place to go out through all the world and make a proclamation to the glory of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. For it's in his blessed name that we pray. Amen.